One of the most expensive things that you will ever invest in is your family. You will spend more time, you will spend more money, it will cost you more emotionally, it will cost you more financially than almost any other thing that you will ever encounter. If you're successful, it will be an investment that you most highly cherish. And if you fail, it will be your greatest regret. Regret. But for some reason, we, we, we tend to be people sometimes that just kind of haphazardly approach our family development. We, we, we kind of just figure, well, I'll sort this out as I go. We'll kind of, kind of build things as we go. And, and we wouldn't really do that with anything else, right? Like nobody would, would probably, nobody would say, you know what, I'm going to build a house and just, uh, yeah, bring me some stuff. And, and every day I'll just kind of tack on to it and see what I can figure out. No, we, we, we generally hire experts to build our homes. And if we build our own homes, we, we wish that we had hired experts to build our home. Um, yeah, we, uh, we, we buy supplies that match the, 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 the drawings that have been drawn. We we make sure that it's safe. We make sure that it's functional. We use products that we have confidence in. Sometimes with our homes, we're so, we're so careless. And there's a powerful Proverbs in, in Proverbs, in Proverbs, the 24th chapter, in verse number three. And it goes like this. It says, through skillful and godly wisdom, a house is built. And by understanding, it is established on a sound and good foundation. And by knowledge shall the chambers of its every area be filled with all pleasant or all precious and pleasant riches. According to Scripture, the, the family, the home, the house, as this text uses, is not built by chance, but it's built very deliberately. It doesn't just naturally happen, but it's a choice of the builders to, to make certain that they're putting things together in such a way that the intended outcome will be the result. And I think probably all of us have tried enough DIY projects to know that just because you have the right materials <laughs> and you have a good intention and maybe you have a little bit of experience in that area doesn't necessarily guarantee success, does it? There's a thousand million projects that I've tried over the years that I have been an absolute failure at. And, and probably you guys have as well. In fact, it's some kind of sometimes fun to watch people do, do DIY projects. I was talking to a friend of mine this past week who decided, I don't know why you decide this, but he decided that he was going to build a bass guitar out of Legos, all right? Now, I'm all into Legos. How many of you played with Legos when you were a kid? Yeah. Um, some of you are still kids and you're playing with Legos. Yeah. I loved Legos. I never felt the need to build an electric guitar out of Legos, but he did. And so I'm like, well, how did you do that? He said, well, I built the body, you know, I did all this stuff. And then he poured epoxy over it, right? So he had, he had done a little research on the Internet, and he had found out that what you do is you make a form out of MDF, and, and you spray some spray in there, and then you just pour the epoxy into the MDF frame, and voila, when the epoxy cures, it pops out like cookies off of a greased, off of greased cookie sheet, and life is good except that something went very wrong in that. And so when he went to go take the MDF off of the, 
off of the guitar form that he was building, they had become one. They had married one another in the night, and uh, there was no getting it off. He's literally chipping it off with a hammer and a chisel. There's a huge mess all over his garage, all over his driveway. That's how a lot of projects go. And you know what? If you're building a bass guitar out of Legos, who cares, right? But when you're building a family, when you're investing in the hearts of little children that maybe God has blessed to you, when you're working in the, in the intimate space that we call a home, there's not a lot of option for failure. There's not a lot of margin for risk. And so over the next few weeks, we're going we're gonna to take some time to talk about the foundations of a godly home. What does that look like? How, how, do we, how do we make for certain that we are accepting advice that is not advice that's going to end up in failure, but advice that's going to be successful? How do we build a home that is on principles and concepts that are going to be for the long term? This morning, I think we're going to start with a very simple place. And certainly, as I kind of introduce this, probably a lot of you are going to be like, well, yeah, Jason, we know that. We've, we've grown up in church. We've been around church. We know a few things about this. This morning, we're going to talk about having Jesus as the foundation in a home. And I know that's the Sunday school answer. I know that that is the right answer for everything. If a preacher asks you a question, Jesus will generally be the correct answer for that. But there's maybe no place that's more important outside of the church for Jesus to be the foundation of than your home. I don't care if you're a single adult here today. I don't care if you're a grandparent. I don't care if you're, if you're extremely elderly. I don't care if you're a great, great, great grandparent. Jesus needs to be the foundation of your home. Hebrews, the third chapter, is with the rest of Scripture, kind of reminds us that when the Bible talks about a house being built, it's talking about this idea of the home, right? Hebrews is written to the Hebrew people, and it reflects this ideology that, that uh, the Old Testament talks about a lot that we just read, in, like, like we just read in the book of Proverbs. But I want you to think about something this morning with me. What would it look like, just say, what would it look like if Jesus literally moved in your house? Like, tomorrow, you get a phone call. It's Gabriel, yes. Um, I, would like to, I would like to let you know that on Tuesday, Jesus is moving in. He's going to bring a suitcase. He just needs a bed and a little table. I think Jesus would need a table so he could study probably, right? Um, needs a little table. Would Jesus need a Bible in his room? Of course he would need a Bible in his room, right? He's Jesus. So he needs a table and a Bible. He is moving into your house. He is going to hang out with you. He is going to live with you for the next six months. Think about that for a moment this morning. How would, how would that affect us? How would that change us? How would that... How would that panic us? Because that's exactly the position that Jesus wants to have in your home. He wants to live there. He wants to abide with us there. And so this morning, we're going to talk about three ways that we might know that Jesus is abiding in our home. 
three things that when Jesus abides there just naturally accompany his presence. And I have to admit to you this morning, this is just three of the things that are kind of on the top of the shelf. Certainly there's a lot more that would come along with it. But, but when Jesus is in our home, when our home is a Christ-centered home, it is marked by love, not perfection. One of the most extraordinary things about Jesus coming into this world is that he came into this world in the first place. The book of Hebrews and the Old Testament powerfully illustrate how that God is a holy God. In fact, Scripture says that our righteous acts, our best parts, are like filthy rags to God. In comparison to his goodness, we are absolute failures. And yet Jesus allowed himself to come into this world and to become one of us. Not only that, but you guys know as he starts ministry, well, he grew up in a, in a family. That had to be some kind of a mess for Jesus, right? Brothers and sisters, the natural selfish human tendencies displaying themselves, the flawed parts of both of his parents, although they were wonderful people. You, you can just get on along the edges and you, you get the hints that they were human, right? Mary, when Jesus is in the temple at age 12, her immediate response to Jesus hanging around teaching the chief, the, the scribes and Pharisees in the temple isn't, my goodness, you're smarter than I thought you were, son. It's, why did you do this to us, right? They were human. And then he selects 12 guys. They're going to be his earthly family, in a sense. They were his closest companions, the apostles. And talk about a wreck. Those guys were. In fact, it seems like Jesus intentionally looked for broken people, and he pulled them in and he said, hey, we're going to make a team together. People that couldn't have been any different from one another. Jesus understood that what we need as humans and what a family and a home should be built on is love, not just perfection. The Bible calls us to work toward perfection. But it always calls us to work toward that perfection, to become better people, to become more spiritual people, to develop not just physically our talents and abilities here, but our spiritual connection with God through, through the opportunity of love. John would write back years after the ministry with Jesus in 2 John, the sixth verse, and, and he says, as you've heard from the beginning, his command is, that you walk in love. That's what Jesus did that was so different about Jesus. You know, like a lot of times we look at the stories of Jesus and we're, we're compelled by Jesus and we wonder, how is it that these people were attracted to Jesus? How was it that Jesus could have such a powerful influence on people? There was this thing about Jesus that people recognized. The Apostle Paul alludes to this somewhat in the opening verses of 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, when he, when he talks about the importance of love, right? And he, he said that you, you can speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but if you don't have love, you're a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. You're, you're, you're noise, because even though you, you, you're a powerful orator, even though you have the command of language, do you know how to make that language connect with the heart? Because that's what love does. He said that you, could, that you could surrender your body to the flames. Well, actually, he said you could give everything away that you have, ultimately. 
You could surrender your body to the flames, but if you have not love, you gain nothing. Because even though you might be a great philanthropist and a powerful giver, love compels people to themselves become givers. When we give without love, it just creates a kind of an environment where people want more, and they want more, and they want more. But when someone gives through the lens of love, then it's an environment that compels people to themselves give to others. That is the thing that we experience in Christianity, right? Jesus says, as I have done for you, you also do for others, for one another. God has called us to have a Christ-centered home that is marked by love not just perfection. When little children come into our homes, many of you have little children or have had little children, you know that in so many ways they are a blank slate. We are born with our own characters, strengths and weaknesses, yes. And we, we are born with our own ability, our inability to love, our own consistency, our own uh, consistency or inconsistency shapes our children. Our unhealthy marriage or our lack of a healthy marriage has a powerful shaping effect on our children. Our own wisdom, our own ignorance, our own philosophies about child raising, about God, about other people, and about life in general, they, they, they soak into that young mind because there's no other option but for that. God puts them in our life, and, and this is what is normal for them. Our own personal habits and our behaviors that are modeled in front of our kids our own treatment of a child and others that are in our family, our own attitudes towards other people, and probably a myriad of other obvious and not so obvious things affect and influence our kids in ways that sometimes we don't even imagine. Children are a product in more ways than we would like to consider of our home of the environment that they experience there. And the first love that a child ever really knows, that first contact that a child ever really knows, comes from the mother and the father and those immediate family members, right? The unconditional love that seeks nothing in return. Those loving times that you remember when you were young with your parents, those moments of cuddling if you had those, or playing ball with your brother in the backyard, or going and getting ice cream down the street, if, that's, if your story is like mine from the Swans Man. Um, those aren't just childhood memories. Those are, those are memories that, that form and shape who you are. And some of us this morning look back and say, Jason, I would love to have those memories. And I'm sorry that you didn't because they are so powerful and so important. A family's love psychologically grounds us, and it provides a framework for us to be able to thrive in future relationships. If we don't have that, sometimes we just can't, we can't connect with people in ways that we would, we would like to. It enables us to form secure attachments to people. Maybe one of the best things as parents we can do for our kids to have a successful future and be successful parents and have a successful marriage relationship is to model that and to live that in front of them because they learn how to have secure, safe attachments with people. Securely attached children feel safe and they feel cared for. And if you had secure bonds from your parents, 
I want you this morning to, if you can, thank them for those, if they're still with us. No parent is perfect. In fact, that's impossible to be perfect because the variables are way too big for all of us. And if you've raised children this morning, as I'm saying this, you are probably thinking about things that you would choose to do differently that probably would have a different outcome in your child's life. We can spend the rest of our life, what if? But the truth of the matter is, is that we only have today and tomorrow if the Lord gives us that. And let's do our part to be that loving person in our family context today, even if we haven't been that person before. When Jesus is one of the foundations of our family and of our home, there's a spirit of love there, not just an expectation of perfection. And that's a very important thing. In contrast, where there are only stark rules and expectations, there's no room for children to learn love or grace. I don't know how many of you guys have those moments, but I do have one of these moments. And I think maybe today the reason that I can understand what grace looks like is because of a, a mistake that happened to me as a young boy in a baker drug in uptown Knoxville, Iowa. You might not know this about me, but I can tend to be a little hyper. Okay, you all do, yeah. And, uh, and so I, I go to the, the, the card store with my mom. Some of you have heard this story before. I go to the card store with my mom. My mom was a ferocious writer of notes to people. It was one of her gifts that God just used. She was a great writer. She knew when to send a card and what to write in a card. But this required my mom getting the cards. And as you might imagine, she was a bit of a perfectionist. And Hallmark writes a lot of cards with a lot of different phrases, right? If you're like me, you just walk in, you find one appropriate, maybe funny, you buy that when you take it and you send it. Not my mother. My mother read every card in the entire section. And she would always say, Jason, as we went into Baker Drug, don't break anything. This is because Baker Drug not only had racks of cards, which were unbreakable, and I would spend some time looking at the funny ones, but they also had these dolls, these Precious Moments dolls. Now, how many of you remember the Precious Moments dolls? Oh, my goodness. I still have nightmares about them. I realize now this story is probably why. I'm in the back. I've just talked to the pharmacist who has his elevated little thing in the back of those old pharmacies. You guys remember that, right? He's staring down at you. He was a pretty foreboding sort of guy. I learned later he was a really nice guy, but as a little kid, he looked scary. And so he said, hello, Jason. And I said, hello, because I grew up in Mayberry, y'all. Knoxville, Iowa is just about Mayberry. Everyone knows everybody there. And when I noticed that one of these precious tear-shaped or teardrop-shaped eye, enormously large head figurines had not been put back on the shelf quite appropriately. It was hanging precariously over. And in my little mind, I calculated that any kid with a head that big shouldn't be that close to the edge of the shelf. And so I would remedy the problem. So I stepped on my tippy toes and but could barely reach. And so... I concluded that just a one-inch jump would give me the sufficient height to tap the Precious Moment doll back on the shelf just enough that, um, that he would be safe from his own peril. And I did, except that not only was I a hyper kid, I was extremely uncoordinated. I have no idea to this day what happened, 
But apparently one of those bodily gyrations of which I am capable and many of you have seen occurred at the point in time from which I decided to jump and I actually jumped. Whatever it was, it caused four glass shelves full of precious moments figurines to fall from their resting place to the floor at my feet. And the moment that it happened, my mom knew exactly who was to blame. I assumed that my life was over because I knew how much those <clears throat> beautiful <clears throat> little figurines cost because my mom liked them. We bought them for her birthday. They cost $30, $40. I didn't know how many beheaded little ones were at my feet, but I knew it was more money than I had ever seen in my lifetime. As my mother comes around the corner with horror, and the lady at the counter came around with horror as well, and the pharmacist looked down from on high, <laughs> I was as broken and as low as I could ever get. My mom has gone to heaven, so I'm just going to tell you that my mom was not a particularly gentle person. And I assume that the next moment would involve a swift kick from here to eternity for me. That's what I, I assumed would happen. What my mother did, I will never forget. She just came and got down on the ground and put her arms around me and said, are you okay? Guys, my mom was hard on me, but I never forgot that moment. I never forgot the moment when the pharmacist came from on high and got a dustpan and broom and we swept all the little headless precious moments children into a dustpan. I never forgot the moment that he told me that I should help him put new shelves back on the deal and we should put the ones that weren't broken back on the shelves. And he told me not to worry about how much it cost. That's what Jesus has done for us in a way so much bigger than those people ever did in my life. And guys, we need to model that love, that grace, and that mercy to those people who are part of what we call family. Matthew 19. There's this moment where Jesus is set a long day. People have been bringing him sick people, demon-possessed people, Jesus is exhausted and tired. He has just gotten in an argument with, with some of the people about, about big things, right? Important adult stuff. And Matthew records what happens here at the end of that moment in Matthew, the 19th chapter. Because it says in verse 13, that then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and to pray for them. But the disciples, they rebuked him. They said, get away. The master is busy. He has more important stuff to do than play with your children. I understand why they did that. Maybe some of you guys do too. Because sometimes we think that the schedule is king. We think that accomplishments are God. We think that learning is the most important thing that we can do in this world. But Jesus heard them. In verse 14, Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. 
For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on him, he went on from there. Let the little children come. The greatest thing that you can do, I don't care where you are and what kind of family you're in, the greatest thing that you can do in the life of a child is to bring them to Jesus. And one of the most powerful ways that you can do that is how you love them. When we love little children as Jesus loved us, you know, Jesus would often say that, right? In fact, the apostles would repeat that phrasing, little children. John would say that in his writings because he saw that those that were new to the faith needed that love. They needed someone to come and put arms around them when they were in the middle of a mess. They needed someone to come and help clean up that mess and not charge them for that mess and remind them of that mess, but say, you know what? Go and sin no more. Second thing that I think is important for us to recognize, and this is among millions of things I know, church, is that in a Christ-centered home, that home is marked by joy. I know that Jesus was called the man of sorrows, and I understand why he was called the man of sorrows, because the burden that was on his shoulders was enormous. The strain was tremendous, and the cost would be absolutely everything. But I don't sense that Jesus went around as a sour face. In fact, I think Jesus lived his life as a person full of complete joy. And I think that our homes should be places of joy and of happiness and of laughter. But if you're a person that's in that home, the power for that to happen is really in your hands. You know, joy isn't really happiness, isn't it? We talk about this a lot, but we should mention this this morning. Joy, happiness is kind of topical. You know, you're, you're at Disney World, so you're happy. You're at the Rice Festival, so you're happy, if you like that kind of thing. You're, you're, you're doing fun things, so you're happy. But joy, joy is something that's different. Joy is that deep-seated sense that things are okay. That, that even though it seems like as we look out around us, the world is out of control, joy is that thing that, that brings us that quiet rest that radiates even in the faces of trials. You know, I, I think our world today, church family, I think we've forgotten what joy feels like. I think we've tried to replace joy with happiness. And the problem is, is that you just can't sustain that. And even in the happiest place on earth, there can be a lot of sorrow and sadness and brokenness, can't there? I think we've forgotten that joy, joy is something very different. Because really true, honest joy can only come from one place. It's a fruit of the Spirit, yes, but it only comes from God. You know, generations past, we weathered some horrible times as a country. Michelle was reading a book recently about, about the Dust Bowl and that kind of pre-depression and then depression period that led into the, the Second World War. If you're a student of American history or world history, you know that in the first part of the 20th century was a very dark time in the world. And yet some of the happiest people I ever knew came from that background and they talked about, especially a couple of people I know, they talked about that era of growing up in the 1930s, of, of having very little, if, en if enough, to eat every day with this great deal of fondness. There was this happiness. There was this joy. There shouldn't have been any of it, but it was there. 
because their families created it. Because the mom and dad that were worried at night about how they were going to feed the children the next day trusted that God would make it happen. Joy only is a part of your life when you trust God to do His part. And so often I think Americans today, we're, we're so involved and we so, we so believe, I've got to do it. And if I don't do it, then no one will get it done. And so I've got to make this happen. I've got to do this. And, and guys, there's nothing that could be farther from the truth. Our job is to simply connect with the Father. John 15, I'm just going to paraphrase that text because we don't have a lot of time this morning. But Jesus said, abide in me like these branches. He's talking about a grapevine right here, and he's, he's talking about abiding and being connected. Let my words help you. Let this be a, a part of you and who you are. I, I just love that text. Abide in me, and I will abide in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Guys, you don't, I don't, we don't have to do this by ourselves. I think some of us right now may be in a place within our family context where we're like, you know what? I, I am just drained. I am, it seems like I'm giving everything I have to everyone else and, 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 and I don't have any more to give. And if you want to know something that will drain your joy, that's it. God doesn't want you to do it that way. He wants you to lean into him. When Jesus is a part of our family, he's present. And he can be that spark of joy, that spark of hope. You know what? We don't have enough money to cover the bills this month. But it's okay because Jesus is here. Think about that, church. Think about that. If Jesus were in your house, and you knew that you had done everything that you could financially to do what you can do, you made a mistake or two here and there. Okay, we all do that financially. But you have, you've done everything that you could do so that you could pay your bills, provide for your family, feed your kids, clothe your wife and husband. And the costs just were more than the income. And if Jesus were in your house, what would you do? I don't know what you would do, but I know what I would do. Hey, Jesus. Yeah. Can I come in? Sure. I'd like to talk about this, Jesus, because we have a problem. We love having you here and all, but you eat too much. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we have a problem, Lord, because we can't make the bills this month. You're the creator of the universe. You own the cow, cattle on a thousand hills. I sang that song when I was in youth group. Can you sell a couple of those? <laughs> Can you make this happen? Guys, I think sometimes we just complicate prayer. We just make prayer and to be this big thing where we have to use flowery words and big language. And, and sometimes we should go to God and probably say, Lord, you know what the problem is here is I was irresponsible this month and I wasted money and I don't have enough to cover the bills, but Lord, I need help. I'm not saying that God is gonna come through every time. I can just tell you this. In Michelle and Mai's life, he comes through time and time again. He provides for our needs. 
Sometimes he does it at the ninth hour at 11.55, but he does it. John 17, John records these parts of Jesus' conversation, his prayer. He says, Father, I say these things so that they might have the full measure of joy within them. That's what God wants for all of us. That's what God wants in your family. I know some of us right now are dealing with heavy stuff. I'm not trying to marginalize that this morning. I would never do that because I've been there. And if you haven't been there, you may someday be there. But I do know this, that God wants you to have this measure of joy. You're not going to be happy in this moment. You can't be, right? But you can have that sense that God's got it under control, that things are all right. Because God is in my home. Jesus is present here. We're going to close with this one. A Christ-centered home is marked by peace. You know, joy and peace are cousins, but they're not the same thing. I have to say this honestly this morning, and I know Michelle would probably prefer that I don't say it. But one of the most valuable things for me has been that our home has always been a place of peace. You guys know what I do for a living. You may not know all of it's involved in this, but this isn't always fun. This is stressful. Sometimes you walk away from a day of work and you just want to throw your hands up and say, Lord, I have no idea what I am supposed to do about this because there isn't anything you can do about it. And then I walk into the door of my house and I'm home. It's secure there. It's safe there. And you know, I've been spoiled. I feel bad this morning telling anything about my story because, because I feel like some of you haven't had this and my heart hurts for that because every kid should have that. But I can still remember days walking home from school, parking my blue banana seat bicycle in the garage, right? Jumping through the door of the house and my mom was there. She was able to stay home in those days. And, uh, and, and she would have cookies on the table and she would say, hey, Jason, holler at the boys and tell them I baked. They were waiting at the end of the driveway to see if mom had baked, right? Like, hey, come on in, guys. All right, boy. And this house would just fill up with people, and they're eating cookies, a bunch of stinky kids from junior high that had just played outside and rode their bikes home. But there was this, this peace, this beauty about that. And guys, I, I preach about this this morning because I want you to have that in your home. I want you to have the peace that comes from Jesus being there. 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter, Paul reminds us that God is not a God of confusion, but he's a God of peace. And that's exactly who God is. Peace doesn't just happen, though. We have to pursue it. And I think of all the people in the New Testament, Peter knew this. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3 and verse 11, he says, And whoever desires to love life and to see good days. I hope that's all of us here this morning. I hope that all of us desire, if you're not in that place right now, you desire that someday you will love life and that you will see good days. Here's the advice that Peter gives, and Peter should know. Let him keep his tongue from evil and keep his lips from speaking deceit. You know, one of the 
most powerful things we can do. And we're going to talk about this in a few weeks, but one of the most powerful things we can do to create that peace within the home is to make certain that we are paying attention to the kinds of things that are coming out of our mouths. There used to be an old phrase when I was a kid that said, sticks and stones, you guys know it, may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That's a lie, and we all know it, don't we? The words that a parent says have a huge and damaging effect. When I was in high school, I remember one particular night where I was laying in bed, and we were going through a difficult season as a family. My dad had been off from work for an extended period of time. The work hadn't been paying, so there was financial stress. My mom was going through some things both in her family, with her family and with her own health. There was stress in our home. And I remember one night it boiled over. Now, we lived in a house at this time. We'd moved off the, off the farm. We lived in a house that was 969 square feet. Tiny. Every other house in our neighborhood had a basement. We were like this little tiny house. We, we, my mom and dad had done exactly what financial planners say to do. Buy the smallest house in a neighborhood of big houses, right? That's exactly what they had done. 969 square feet, two-bedroom home, tiny. And it was built as a track house, which means that the walls were like paper, I, I think. I, I don't know. They, they were two-by-threes, literally. And there was no insulation. So if there was something said in another room, I could hear it. My mom and dad were trying to have an argument without raising their voices, but I could hear every word. And I wouldn't tell this story if they're here, but they're in heaven now. And I think they would want me to tell it because that completely destroyed my self-confidence for a season. I didn't know where I stood in the world because the peace that was supposed to be at my house wasn't there. And I'm telling you this story this morning for those of you who are struggling right now. I know some of us have had things that have blown apart, and I'm not, I'm not guilting you this morning, so please don't think that it's what I'm doing. I'm not. But those of us who are arguing and struggling in the presence of our children, you might not think they can hear you. They can hear you. Even if they can't hear you, they can sense it. Kids are born with super hyper sensitive antenna when it comes to peace in the home. They know when peace exists and when peace doesn't. And I'm not saying that two married people are always going to live in marital bliss because we all know that's not going to happen either. But can I ask you this morning to work with everything you have to restore that peace as quickly as possible. Don't let your pride, don't let self-righteousness get in the way of restoring peace. And Peter tells us how to do that. He says, keep your tongue from evil and don't lie to one another. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Wow, that's pretty powerful. Not only do we seek peace, I want peace. But Peter says, you do something about it. It means you get out and you pursue it. And pursue is a word that has, has emotion in it, right? It has action. We're going to move in that direction. Move in that direction of peace. Because, guys, it is worth the effort. It takes effort to maintain a peaceful home. But it's worth every bit of it. As we close this morning, I just want to share 10 things that I threw together that maybe help us accomplish some of these things that we've talked about this morning. Number one, prioritize personal and family devotions. We can get busy 
The Corder family gets busy. I used to study the Bible every morning with my kids before they went to school, and then the situation changed. And for some reason, I thought, I guess I could stop. And I feel guilty about that, and I'm going to have to get up earlier and start that process because devotions as a family are just important. Secondly, pray often. Even more than you might think necessary, all right? Some of us are like, I'm good, right? No, go ahead and pray. Pray for every single one of those kids. You know, a few years ago, I was preaching a sermon series. I feel guilty about this my whole life, but I'm preaching through a sermon series. And as I come across that section of text where Jesus is talking about requests from God, he said, pray that you will not enter into temptation. I pray that every day for my family. Keep communication lines open. Ask questions. Ask specific questions. You don't have to actually talk about it. Just fill in those things. Listen well. I'm not a good listener, but learn how to become a good listener. And generally, that involves Peter's advice of keeping our mouths shut for a moment. Listen to good music. I don't know, maybe you're not music people, but man, at my house, we always had music on. And, and my mom always put good music on. Cheerful, uplifting music. Music that made a difference. Smile a lot even more than you think necessary. <laughs> I know some of us, we, we're like, oh, good. That's my resting face. Well, you know, try to do like Schwarzenegger did in The Terminator right there. You know, try to, try to figure out how to get those smile muscles working once in a while. You'll be amazed at what happens when your spouse walks in after a lousy day or your kids walk, drag in after practice, and you're like, just a smile. Hey, how's your day today? You'll be amazed at how that can change things. I know you think it's silly, but just try it and see. Unplug every day. Meal time at the quarter house is unplugged time. Everyone leaves their phones somewhere else, or at least they're supposed to. Sometimes Papa is the guilty one right here because I have important things to do. It's not that important. It's no more important than the people that are sitting around my table. Unplug that phone. Overuse please, and thank you, and I'm sorry, and I love you, and my pleasure. You know, Chick-fil-A figured something out. When you tell people, I enjoyed doing that for you. Even if you don't mean it, people think you mean it, and they come back there and buy more chicken sandwiches. You know what? Sometimes the people that we love the most just need to know that we love to be their family. Make God's name and his word evident in every area, in every situation. Maybe today you're looking at this and you're like, Jason, that's great, but that ship has sailed. There's problems in my home that are bigger than me. I want to challenge every one of us in this room, whether you have a broken family story or a perfect, beautiful family story. I want to challenge you to do something this morning. I want to challenge you to bring Jesus home. There's a moment when a man named Jairus finds out that his daughter is sick. She's dying. He's a ruler of a synagogue, and he's not certain about Jesus, but, but he's desperate. And so he goes over to where Jesus is, and he says, Jesus, can you come to my house, and can you heal my daughter? In fact, Mark records the story in Mark, the fifth chapter. I'm just going to read it for you this morning. It says that when he saw him, he fell at his feet, and he begged with him earnestly, saying, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her she might be healed and she will live. And while he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house and he said, your daughter's dead. 
my trouble to teach her anymore. There's always people in this world that are going to say, ah, you can't fix that. You done ruined that relationship. You can't undo what you've already done. That may be true. But Jairus wasn't just bringing any old person home. Jairus was bringing Jesus home. If you don't know the story, I want you to listen up what happens. Because as soon as, Mark records, Jesus heard the word was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid. Some of us in this room this morning are scared to death about the future. We're scared to death about our own marriages. We're scared to death about our children and about our family. And if you're bringing Jesus home, don't be afraid. If you're not bringing Jesus home, you should be afraid. But if you're bringing Jesus home, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John. When they came to the house, the rule of the synagogue, they saw turmoil. And those who wept wailed loudly. You know, anytime things aren't right in the home, there's going to be some turmoil. There's going to be some ruckus. There's going to be some wailing. And when he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? This child is not dead, but sleeping. And if you know the story, you know they're like, oh, whatever, Jesus. We know dead when we see dead. We know broken when we see broken. We know unrepairable when we see unrepairable. And Jesus rebuked them. Then he took the child by the hand. Or, well, he ridiculed him, and when he put them all outside, man, I just got to say this. I know we're out of time this morning, but I got to say this. If your marriage is in trouble, put those people outside. I don't care who they are in your life. If they're not for your marriage, if they're not for reconciliation, if they're not for Jesus coming into your home, get them out. They're not going to help you, and they're going to distract Jesus from what he wants to do in your home. Jesus put them out. So get out of here. Then he took the father and the mother of the child, and Peter, James, and John. Child was late. He took the child by the hand and he said to her a phrase in Aramaic, simple words, that's really way more powerful. Just a gentle, sweet shepherd to a child saying, Hey, come on. Immediately the little girl arose walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. If you think that things are too broken to be fixed in your family and in your relationship this morning, bring Jesus home. You may not know it as you look around this room this morning, but I do because I've been a part of those stories, and I would never say anything about any of that, but I know some of you. And I know the brokenness that's been a part of our story together. And I know the restoration that Jesus has brought. And a lot of people would say, there ain't nothing you can do to fix it. But they brought Jesus home. And because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Church family, let's stand together and sing a beautiful old hymn. I'm going to start you in this hymn this morning, but I need you guys to sing really loud because this is an emotional.